0: It makes you wanna re-examine our entire way of scheduling these drugs. I just want to ask why schedule one, I'll read you schedule one. Marijuana, heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and magic mushrooms. So we're saying that marijuana and heroin are in the same schedule. Welcome to the Lost Debate a Show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Welcome back, Joe Garvey. How's it going, gang? All right. We have uh, a few awesome segments to talk about today. We have bipartisan support to weaken restrictions on psychedelics. We'll talk about that legislation and whether it has any chance of passing. We'll also talk about a California church and a local county who are continuing to do battle over COVID closures and a long-running you know, series of fines and lawsuits involving that. But let's start with the four-day school week.
1: Small rural districts across the country are shifting to a four-day school week.
2: Some school districts are turning to shortening the school week to four days to try to recruit and retain teachers.
1: In talking to the the staff and the students, there seems
2: to be a culture of less stress. And so we moved to the four-day week to have less days, and that did work.
1: We are a lower-income area, and so I do have big concerns that some of our families are going to struggle.
2: Another district switching to a short school week, but is it working? Is it worth it?
0: So I didn't realize how big and fast growing this phenomenon is. Joe, drop some facts on us.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks. So a growing number of school districts, particularly in rural areas, are experimenting with shorter school weeks. Just how many? We've gone from 250 schools in 1999 to 1,600 in at least 25 states in 2022, and when uh, people have asked why exactly schools are doing it, proponents say it can help with teacher recruitment and retention, among some other benefits. Uh, but Robbie, before we start exploring some of the research here, you know what are your what are your initial takes on this model? I mean, wouldn't it have been nice to have a have a three day weekend as a kid?
0: Well, why stop it? Why stop at four? Let's go to one, right? Like <laughs> like the, all the arguments for this, which we'll get to have to do with. Uh, The the sort of first wave here, and I don't actually believe we should go to one to be clear, so stick with me, listener, but there were two waves of, it appears, two waves of movements to shorten the school day. One wave happened around the time when I was starting a school after the financial crisis in 2008, and it looks like um, from that period to 2019, by 2019, we have 650 districts of more than 13,000 kids who've adopted the schedule and mainly for fiscal reasons to try to save money. And then the second wave, which we're experiencing right now, is largely to do with staff retention. And we'll get into the data on both of those fronts. But my sense is I'm less concerned about how many days kids are in school than how many minutes and hours they're spending on instruction and other critical activities like recess and socializing with each other. And so how many days less important to me than how many hours?
1: Yeah. One study found that they were, um, schools that were doing this on average had 58 fewer hours per year. Um, like actually in school doing school. I think there's, um, it's obviously like a case by case basis. And I guess in rural areas, I'm not as familiar with what the, the pressures might be there to push to a four day work uh, school week. But I mean, I think that there's a world that I could come up with in my head where you have like four slightly longer days and then a fifth day that maybe requires different staff. Like you, you do sports and activities and maybe just make like at least an optional fifth day for kids. Because to me, I think the biggest concern I have here beyond just the, the loss of actual school hours is for families and parents who don't have the option to just like be at home babysitting their kid for a a fifth day or, you know, if kids are older and they're high schoolers like, who knows what they're going to get up to with an extra weekend right. day. I don't know when they're all just kind of roaming around and their parents aren't home either. Um, so I think that they're, that's the biggest concern for me. I think there could be a way if, if it's genuinely a response to staff shortages to have a fifth day with like different potentially non-teacher staff that can, that are coaches or that are leading club activities. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, th- I think, Unless our our work week were also to fundamentally restructure around this shift, I don't think it makes any sense for, for a lot of parents.
0: Yeah, and it seems like in a lot of the districts, you know, we're talking about a largely rural and now sometimes suburban phenomenon. These are not the districts that are necessarily more likely to be pioneering on the employment side the four-day work week, like when we start to compare that data. But, you know, and talking about the trends here, back, you know, these fiscal moves that people were making after the financial crisis were in states like Colorado, Montana, Oklahoma, Oregon. More recently, the idea spread to Missouri seems like a big area where this is happening, where one in four school districts are operating four days a week. And in Texas, where 60 school districts have adopted the idea. um, That is massive, one out of four in Missouri, and just focusing on some of the claims being made. So like starting with the fiscal argument from back in the day, which is not what we're going to spend most of our time on because the, the argument now is mostly to do with in, in trying to attract teachers. But uh, people looked into this, and, and one of the reasons why it didn't become like even more widespread, like these sort of fiscal moves that districts were making in part, like the economy recovered. But two is data came back saying that there really wasn't that much savings. So the Education Commission of the states found that districts using shortened weeks trimmed somewhere between 0.4% and 2.5% off their budgets. Uh, So this is not a lot. A a more recent study in Oklahoma said it was about 2%. So it seems like, you know, mainly what we're talking about is like, you know, um, how much does it cost to serve lunch how much does it cost to to transport kids back and forth but like some of the most you know the highest fixed costs of running a school are personnel by by far and this isn't yeah. going to change that
1: well I mean you could theoretically offer or advertise a lower salary with this added benefit of a third day off that's
0: what the unions are worried about right Randy yeah. Weingarten who I, I thought Randy Weingarten who's head of one of the largest teachers union in the country, I thought she'd be for this, but she seems very skeptical. But no. I think because she sees where this could go.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just looking at some of these studies here, like kids that, are, that have more time off are more likely to commit crimes, um, like on uh, 11 out of 12 test score metrics, kids in, in um, five-day school week schools were um, performed better than their four-day school week counterparts. I mean, of course, that's not a perfect control because there might be um, like factors that go into the fact that this might be like a lower socioeconomic school district that had to make this choice in the hopes that it would help them financially. But, um, yeah, this whole thing, I just, I'm not really in favor of that, but I would say as somebody who had a six day school week in high school, um, there's certainly the opposite extreme too. And I think that's an potentially far more detrimental and unhealthy way to, um, treat kids and treat childhood, but...
0: I take it that six day was Saturday?
1: Yeah, Saturday classes at 8.30 in the morning with teenagers who, like, can't even be up at 8.30 in the morning in the first place. I think it was... It was the one of the most depressing places I've ever been, my high school campus with really unhappy kids and I don't think that helped.
0: <laughs> was it <laughs> to be honest. Was it a full day to
1: 8:30? Um no, it ended at like 11:30, but then you'd have sports practices all day and stuff mm-hmm. and like it yeah. was I, you I know, i would never talk to my parents
0: that, that. again.
2: They made me do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it was a boarding school so I think that like the the theory was like keeping kids busy so they don't go to, like, New York City. It was, like, an hour away and mm. get into trouble while they're while the school is liable for them. But I do think that there's, like, a legitimate balance that we need to strike in terms of, like, free time and unstructured time for kids. Um, and, you know, kids that are in this four-day school week structure have an additional four hours of free time. Um, but 80-plus percent are just spending it at home mm. um, when they do get this extra free day. So I'm not really... Convinced that this is the most constructive way to go, but I do think that like this is the fact that we can do these studies and experiment with different things is is a testament to the fact that having local school districts making these calls and and not having them be sweeping statewide or national calls is is a healthy thing because you know maybe there is a school district where this makes more sense or maybe um, like. Something will be found that shows that these kids are long term way more successful. I mean, I, I just mm-hmm. I think it's a testament to the fact that our like more localized school district system is a healthy thing.
0: Well it seems like the seminal study on this was from Paul Thompson at Oregon State University, who showed that there was significantly lower math and ELA achievement in schools that moved to four day work week. But he found, and I think this is a key finding, if you maintain the same levels of instructional time then there's no difference in performance. And this is where things get tricky. Well, how do you maintain the same amount of instructional time in four days versus five? He suggested limiting recess, lunch, or study periods, which I find is, I'm not sure there's a lot of people out there are saying kids don't have enough recess in school, or that their lunch periods are too long. So I'm not sure that's the move, because there's a lot of Especially we've talked about all these trends, like kids are spending more time alone, they're spending more time in video games on computers and phones. I think going to school and having that unstructured playtime, assuming that the schools are smart enough to take the phones away during recess so the kids actually do things outside of screens, I'm not sure we want to be taking that time away. But, Ricky, uh, let's actually hear from, this was ABC, uh, talked to Dr. Greg Smith uh, superintendent of schools at Warren County, Missouri, and he describes why they are pro four-day school week.
2: We're really a, a rural school district outside of, Higher-paying districts, we struggled to retain our teaching staff. So we were losing about almost 20% of our teaching staff every year. And we said, "Well, we can't pay. What can we bargain with?" And time is what we had to bargain with, and that did work.
0: And so, you know, obviously, Ricky, he's justifying this as a personnel issue, like teacher shortages, yeah. which, as we talked about, are, are not, you know, they're not a truism everywhere. But there are certain districts really dealing with severe teacher shortages, and he's saying, "Hey, I'm going to attract more teachers with this."
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, if it's if it comes down to not having enough people to staff your classroom, this could be a a last resort. But I do think it's important to hear the opposite perspective from parents. Let's hear from a mother via KSHB News in Kansas City. It's very much a place where, you know, your child's safe and you know that you have the care from nine to four every day, Um, then It's all of a sudden off the table for you. That's a huge deal for a lot of people and a lot of families. If it hurts my kids' education, then I will, I have no issues either moving out of um, the district or turning to private school.
0: Yeah, so this is the perspective, right? Like, what are our schools about? It's not about the adults Mm -hmm. teaching in them, as much as I like. think it's really important to make the work fulfilling and worthwhile for our educators. It's really important, and that obviously affects our kids. Like you got parents and kids who are who we should be thinking about first, and you know back when when I was running schools, we had a seven thirty to five p.m. day. Now that was a really long day, but one of the reasons why uh, so many parents. Wanted to send their kids to our school it wasn't just because of our model. It wasn't just because of our academic results. The number one reason parents would cite is that they often worked really long shifts and they needed somewhere for their kids to go. And these were often parents who couldn't afford childcare, and our country doesn't do a great job of providing that childcare elsewhere. And so it is a balance.
1: Absolutely. Well, my final my final thought here is no six day school weeks, please. Let's just <laughs> stick with five. Either way, I think is a unpromising path to go down.
0: Um, Joe, there's one last piece before we move off of this that I just want to get right here, which is there's this there is a debate about whether districts do in fact attract more teachers when they move to the four-day work week, because there's this post this article in the Washington Post by Laura Meckler, and she starts off with an uh, anecdote from Terrell Independent School District outside of Dallas, which saw a surge in applications after it moved to a four-day work week. And but it seems like there's this RAND study out there. That found that counterintuitively, in the long run, this doesn't necessarily help? Is that is that right?
2: Yeah. So the RAND report uh, indicates that, quote, teachers view the four-day school week as a job perk, but found quantitative results inconclusive as a long-term retention strategy. Hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah, that seems counterintuitive. We'll see now like as this practice grows, and especially as it grows in particular as a solution to recruitment and retention, maybe we'll get better data. It seems intuitive that this would work in recruiting and retaining teachers, especially if the salary stays the same. But we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, One other piece of data to just make note of for our listeners, there was a study in the Journal of Economic Research and Policy Analysis that tracked student performance over a dozen years and attendance and discipline over nine years uh, in 411 districts who adopted the four-day model. And they found that moving to shortened weeks you know, saw a 39% average drop in bullying and a 31% decline in the number of fights and assaults on campuses. So if you're keeping track, that's a larger decrease in those incidents than you would associate with the decrease in the amount of time they're spending together. Um, and to put that in perspective, that's nearly twice as large an effect as the average 20% drop in bullying behavior is seen for common school-based anti-bullying programs. However, the shortened schedules had no effect on discipline problems related to drugs or alcohol, vandalism, truancy, school bus misbehavior, or bringing weapons to school. Uh, so mixed results, I guess is what I would say. Well, Ricky, you had a chance to talk to Rand Paul uh, a couple of days ago, and you came back with an interesting fact.
1: Yes. Um, there is an update to um, an act that's already been introduced that he and Cory Booker are co-sponsoring. So this is bipartisan called the Breakthrough Therapies Act, um, which essentially would allow for better research to be done into certain psychedelics, including MDMA and psilocybin um, by reclassifying it as from a schedule one drug to a schedule two drug, which would allow for the FDA to, um, to do more testing and research and also um, allow some patients, patient access while it's being monitored by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And so um, as it stands right now, it's in classification one, which essentially means that there is no accepted medical use um, for these psychedelics and moving it to class two would mean that there is an acceptable medical use and treatment with severe restrictions. So this would basically open up the doors to um, doing more experimentation. Uh, One of the groups of people that um, Rand Paul is particularly interested in, is trying to help uh, veterans who are suffering from PTSD. And so this would essentially um, lift one of the, the biggest barriers to actually getting approval to do any research with these these substances.
0: This is such a puzzling issue, and I'm glad that there's bipartisan support to see you know Senator Booker and Rand Paul on this, and then see others like Nancy Mace and others in Congress supporting this move. It makes you want to re-examine our entire way of scheduling these drugs. So, you know, we have five different schedules of drugs in this country. The lower the number, the more severe the restrictions. And these largely have to do with a combination of how lethal and dangerous a drug is and uh, any sense of the medical use of it. And I just want to ask why uh, schedule one, I'll read you schedule one, marijuana, heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and magic mushrooms. So we're saying that marijuana and heroin are in the same schedule, uh, and meaning like they have basically equivalent medical use. In this case, they're saying not much. And they're, they're in some ways lethal in, in any way that's similar. It's crazy. And Schedule 2 is cocaine, meth, oxy. Adderall, Ritalin, Vicodin. So essentially we're saying marijuana has less medical use than cocaine. Has no medical use. No medical use. Whereas cocaine somehow does. I mean, I don't know what what we're using cocaine for. I must be missing something.
1: You know, this is something that I'm I'm happy, as you are, to see bipartisan support on. I think it's something that we need to be... um, cautious about certainly but under the class two um, restrictions it would still have like severe monitoring by the drug enforcement agency and you know a lot of oversight would still exist I think that you know, these drugs got extremely stigmatized in the 60s and we still have um, the ramifications of that. I I certainly think that there are quite a lot of benefits that we've seen in certain populations and in certain people within those populations. But um, it's associated with people being able to quit smoking and drinking, um, reducing depression and anxiety related to cancer and terminal illnesses, um, relieving major depression for up to a year after people take it. um, And then Um, the V the VA is also studying, um, PTSD and other disorders in veterans. Mm. So, um, I think there's, there's a lot that I, that certainly at least allowing us, us to study it in a controlled and safe environment is the way to go. Um, one of my like craziest things that I learned in my history class at NYU was about this, um, the CIA employee Frank Olson, who back in the day when we were experimenting with cold war, um, like psychedelics as basically like weapons, um, and concerned that foreign nations might start using it against our people, our, our own Americans. Um, in the fifties, his CIA, um, boss, spiked his his drink with LSD <laughs> at a party and he ended up jumping out of a window and falling to his death in a New York City hotel because we wanted to experiment with it and we were experimenting with our own government Agency employees. And so this is, I mean, there's been long-term interest in seeing where this goes. And this is certainly a lot of safer and more ethical way to do it. Um yeah. than we have in history, even though we have had a long history of being at least interested yeah. in this sort of stuff.
0: There's a great book on this that goes through the history, the science, and then a little bit of a personal travelogue on this by Michael Pollan, the the New Yorker writer and uh, science writer. It's called How to Change Your Mind. It's really amazing. And Let's, let's hear from him a little bit because he basically underlines this point that like there's kind of like an unfortunate history of psychedelics that's clouding everybody's judgment on this issue today.
1: Yeah.
3: The fact that these substances that had a terrible reputation dating back to the 60s, a time when they were used in ways that were often reckless and led to problems, that we are realizing something that we actually knew in the 1950s and forgot, which was that psychedelic substances like LSD, psilocybin, which is the chemical in magic mushrooms, and and, and MDMA, which is the chemical uh, also known as ecstasy, that these actually are powerful therapeutic tools and research has been done, a lot of it in, in the UK at Imperial College, but uh, all over the United States, uh, that we are doing you know, controlled drug trials uh, to see if these substances could help deal with things like depression, anxiety, uh, the fear of death among the terminally ill, addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, and the results have been really uh, remarkably positive. <laughs>
0: I don't want to just make this about therapeutic use because I think obviously legalizing substances in general, including substances that could be bad for you, although I, I think people exaggerate the the dangers of psychedelics, but we will talk about them. that it's not just about therapeutic, therapeutic use. If you know, if this is a substance that people can use to help make their lives better and flourish better, regardless of whether they have some kind of acute illness or risk factor, I still think they're useful, but I do think the data here is tremendous. Like, Ricky, you kind of summarized it before. Most of the sort of use cases that have been tested, which is really hard to test, to be clear, especially in the United States, uh, they've been done by really reputable institutions. So just Mm -hmm. John Hopkins alone has found, for instance, you talked about smoking. They had a study that showed the abstinence rate for study participants was 80 percent uh, after six months uh, from smoking. so I, and they compare that to thirty five percent experience uh, for uh, getting people to quit smoking on I don't even know how to say this drug really well, but like equivalent like of uh, it's called ver- um, which is uh, apparently considered to be the most effective smoking cessation drug. So it's more more powerful by more than two x in that study, at least than, the uh, most effective other tool used for this. You talked about anxiety. So they had this study about Um, people facing life-threatening cancer. And six months after the final session of treatment, about 80% of participants continue to show clinically significant decreases in depressed mood and anxiety, with 60% showing symptom remission into the normal stage. You had similar data around alcohol, where you had people um, quitting alcohol in really high numbers, showing uh, cessation of uh, depression symptoms, et cetera. Now, many, many more studies are needed to confirm Uh, a lot of these findings. And that's part of the point, what Rand Paul and Booker are trying to do is to say, look, Mm -hmm. like, let's make it easier for people to even study some of these questions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's even questions um, that, I mean, they're unproven, but like whether certain religious movements historically, and even like early Christian movements have um, had like worse respond by some sort of psychedelic experience. And so, I mean, this is like a deeply um, spiritual experience for a lot of the people who do it. Um, Studies have shown that it's the claustrum region of the brain that slows down, which is the area that like sets your attention and helps you switch tasks. And uh, essentially that would um, indicate that like your sense of self and your attachment to your like own being and ego gets reduced, which Um, is kind of the concept of religion Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. You're, you're supposed to look towards a greater, a greater good. Um, I would say in terms of the studies that we do have out of Johns Hopkins, Roland Griffiths is the um, researcher that's been at the helm of that. And he's, brought a lot of people in controlled settings through these trips. Um, and you know, he, he's very bullish on the future of these drugs and the use of them in therapy. But I do think it's important to underline that he says that like roughly a third of people have like a really bad experience when they do this. You never know. Um, and so doing it in a controlled and safe setting is really important. Um, and also he, absolutely flat out refuses to have anybody with a family history of schizophrenia or any schizoaffective disorder to um, participate in these studies. And I think that sometimes we end up in these narratives of like, oh, this drug was unfairly um, like banned entirely, or like this, we're going after people and arresting people for substances that should be they should be allowed and have a right to take, and we kind of lose the nuance of there is some reason. Like it's never going to be a black and white thing, and there is a legitimate. Counterpoint, especially for people with specific family histories and about 25% of people who end up having a drug induced psychosis in the short term from taking these psychedelics end up having a long-term diagnosis of schizophrenia. So this could be something that flips the switch on for people who have that predisposition. Um, and that tends to be genetic and family oriented, but I would say even for people who like, aren't sure about their ancestry or their heritage, like just be careful careful before you do this because you never know and it could have long-term ramifications for you that are quite the opposite of what you intended.
0: One also important fact to mention here is that uh, as far as we could tell, there's been no documented case of someone dying as a result of overdosing on psilocybin in particular alone. Obviously, there are some cases where they've taken psilocybin and other things. Um, yeah, which is overdose
1: different. is certainly not the concern. It's and, just, do you have this predisposition and is this an environmental factor that might flip the switch and right. derail you permanently
0: and, and uh, another thing to mention is that there's no reports of uh, physical dependence from chronic use so this is not one of those things that like you become you know physically addicted yeah. to now uh, and I think that begs the question I think part of what people struggle with this question about psilocybin is the the double standards we have in society and particularly around alcohol like the amount of things that are associated like risks, and just straight up things we could say for sure are bad about alcohol, like it increases domestic abuse, it increases car accidents, it has huge detrimental effects to people who use it on their health, right? Like these are all things we know for sure. Um, And in many ways it also, uh, is a uh, precipitant to other disorders. You know, I'm not sure. Probably not schizophrenia, but it's a precipitant to other disorders that people have. Uh, yet somehow we, as a society, decide that alcohol is acceptable, uh, which well, I find I think really crazy. That
1: part of that is just in terms of abundance. Like historically people have always been fermenting things and it's harder when people have widespread access to a substance to put that back in the bottle. Whereas, you know, these psychedelics were popularized in the 20th century and there was a a desire to not allow that to proliferate beyond where it already has or already had proliferated. So I think there's, there's a difference there. I mean, it's, We've had elk, like monkeys will eat like rotting fruit to have the effect. Like <laughs> but they might eat,
0: <laughs> they might <laughs> eat the mushrooms too. You know, there's a there's a great section. Uh, I think it might have been in his interview with Dak Shepard where Pollan describes like what what evolutionarily made plants. He basically thinks that um, in killing their uh, their predators, essentially like the animals that were eating these plants, um, it, it created this adverse effect where they weren't learning to not eat them because they were dying. So he was saying like the better thing to do is like mess with the head of somebody eating you so that they forget where they ever found you. I'm not sure if he's right about it, but it's a funny explanation. But one thing that you said uh, around abundance though, should be taken note of, which is, yes, like, you know, psilocybin use is not as abundant as alcohol for sure. But uh, in a YouGov poll from 2022, 28% of Americans have used at least one crazy. of seven psychedelic drugs. Uh, and so to me, that's saying, well, this is already being used. We shouldn't be locking people up for this. Like, unless we truly think that these people are making, you know, terrible life, you know, decisions that are going to like, that we need to like really step in this as an panel, Robbie, right? Well, I don't know what you guys have done. What this gets <laughs> to, like, um, let me go to well, the a, people.
1: The people who are most likely to <laughs> to have done it are well, people who was are coming. very liberal, <laughs> I knew this was people coming. who make more than hundred thousand dollars, and was people coming. with postgraduate degrees. So, huh, I wonder who in this panel. I think that has on. less have, to do.
0: I think that has less to do with the substance itself but then but the fact that it's banned in the way that it's banned like you have to find it i mean i
1: think I i i would just say i feel like this route that um booker and paul are going down of like declassifying the schedule that it's in rather than just like fully legalizing it like i do think given our history here the best thing to do is to research first and then figure out where we go from there. And this is an important first step that I think you can get a lot more people on board with. Um, and certainly I'm, I'm most interested in seeing it used in like genuine therapy settings and, this is, this is the way to get that started. So
0: It is interesting to see the statewide responses here. Texas uh, lawmakers filed three bills to expand state-sponsored psychedelic research. Missouri lawmakers approved a bill to promote research on psychedelics. In Nevada proposed decriminalizing mushrooms. Of course, Oregon uh, is becoming the first state in the nation to legalize adult use. I'm not sure if the dispensaries are open yet. Joe, I think I asked you to research this to see if we can go on a field trip out there. Not yet. Do we know when? Uh, no.
2: Okay. No, were, there was actually an illegal uh, dispensary that opened up, but the state shut it down.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because my sense is somebody was telling me the other day that these dispensaries will be opening soon. So maybe we'll do a field trip out there. I don't know if any of y'all are interested in doing it, but I did mine outside of the country. And I think like that's part of the issue. Like, Why are people who are higher income taking advantage of it? It's hard to get them in the United States. So you tend to have to have the resources to go find them. And- I don't want it to be an elite thing. I I took them, and I talked about them on the podcast, and I I think it was a really meaningful experience. To me, it was therapeutic, not because I necessarily came in with some acute issue I was trying to solve, but it, it definitely helped me think through some things that have happened to me in my life and some things that I was thinking about ahead and was just like a intensely enjoyable experience. I know that they're not always enjoyable, but to me, I think that's the kind of experience I want more people to have. And given the data around this, it seems like, Yes, as long as you don't have the risk factors, which we need to take seriously, this can be really meaningful to people, whether you have the acute risks or not.
1: Well, Joe, I sent around an article that I thought that we should respond to um, that was a very interesting test case of how far some COVID restrictions have gone in certain localities. So um, what's the story there?
2: Yes. So right now we're waiting on a court date in California to settle a nearly 2.8 million dollar outstanding lawsuit lodged by Santa Clara County against a San Jose church named Calvary Chapel. Now, the lawsuit accuses the church of a series of violations as they continue to hold indoor services during the summer and fall of 2020, right in the early heart of the pandemic. Now, at the time, a lot of public spaces were opening up at half capacity, but religious facilities were required to keep attendance at either 100 people or 25% capacity, whichever was less. But Calvary Chapel continued to operate as normal, flouting the county's orders and, according to Santa Clara County officials, racking up $2.8 million in fines, fees, and penalties. So this whole case is getting a lot of attention now uh, after a journalist, David Zweig, wrote a big piece on the fight between these two, which you uh, referenced, Ricky, titled, when a renegade church and a zealous county health department collide, so yeah, what what do you what did happen when these two came into conflict, Ricky?
1: Well, so just to give some context here, David is he's written for the Atlantic, for a New York Magazine, New York Times. Like this is not some conservative guy with a bone to pick here, um, but he did this long form like investigative deep dive into these lawsuits, looking at the filings that the state. Produced and essentially, just to give a sense of like the double standards that were going on, in September of 2020, there was still no indoor gatherings allowed for churches. Meanwhile, like you could go, 50% capacity could be occurring in a mall at the same time. And then by October, they made the switch that churches could have that 25% capacity, but um, at the same time, museums could have a 50% capacity. Stores had no capacity limits. You could go to a liquor store, but not a church. And so this was struck down by the Supreme Court in February of 2021, based on the fact that this was um, infringing upon religious liberty.
0: Well, and- yeah, well, just one clarification, part of it was struck down. So the um, the indoor uh, ban was struck down, but the capacity limits were kept in place, um, yeah. just to be clear about that.
1: And so it was a portion of their... Um, the the fines that they had racked up that this church got forgiven, but there's still this outstanding $2.8 million uh, lawsuit going on. And there was a point in time where they were make, racking up $5,000 a day in fines. And I think there's, there's two questions here. First is the question about like, should there have even been a prohibition on religious services in the first place in the way that it was um, should religious services have had a specific um Allowance beyond other large public gatherings because the content of the service and because of our guarantee of freedom of religion. That's one question that I think is more debatable than the second question of how insanely overboard, in my view, this county went in order to enforce this to the most ridiculous hall monitor degree that could have such dystopian implications for regardless of whether you're religious, regardless of your thoughts on COVID for a lot of other facets of society. But
0: yeah. anyways. Well, okay. I agree with those. There's you know, the two questions for sure. Let's start with that religious question. I think the way this is being talked about by some people as if the law was only about churches. So uh, there's this case from 1982 about religious freedom and regulation called Plyler versus Doe. And in that case, the Supreme Court says, the Constitution doesn't require things which are different in fact to be treated in law as if they were the same. And I think about this case because when I'm reading some of these articles, they're saying they banned churches, they banned churches, and they neglect to mention they banned churches, theaters, lecture halls in the same way. And so in that sense, it was content neutral. Now, one could, and I definitely like... Agree with a lot of these criticisms that sometimes the law, li- like the lines they were drawing were silly, but what the the state was saying was the difference between a church and, say, a mall is that people go into a church and they sing and they yell and they are like in closer uh, quarters than they are if they're walking around a mall. Now, we could quibble with that and say that's stupid or whatever, but they weren't targeting churches because of their religious content. They were charging churches because of the mechanisms by which they brought people together, and that's why this court was so closely divided. If you read this case, uh, Roberts yeah. offered a concurrence in which he basically said, look, I want to defer to the to the state as much as possible. So I'm going to defer to them on the capacity limits, but I'm not going to defer to them on the outright indoor ban. And they were all trying to find the line between, like, what does it mean to question the public health guidance of a state? And so when I read this, I'm saying, look, there are a lot of things I would have personally done differently, but I'm not sure the state was targeting this institution because they were religious.
1: Well, I think that the argument that I would make here is that the state should have had the foresight to say we should go out of our way to not specifically single out churches, which I know that it's other public gatherings as well, but there is a specific constitutional protection for religious observance. And this is going in way like into the beginning of 2021 as well. This is not just the early days of the pandemic that this monitoring was going on, but the, I think that the, the counter argument, I I mean, I'm not in the camp of saying that like, it was just churches that were being singled out, but it should have been precisely the other way around where they should have been concerned with making as many reasonable like exceptions to the rule for people who are just trying to express their religious faith, especially yeah. in a time of, of suffering, which the pandemic obviously was. And, you know, um, the, the author of this article spoke to people that went to this church and um, you know there's one example of a woman named Katie who thinks that her 21 year old son would have died if not for having some form of community um, she said his drinking got so bad we worried for his life when you have no hope for your child who you love so much to know where to go for that hope when almost everything is shut down and then he ended the quote there because she was choking up she couldn't even finish it and she said we're law abiding people he said that he didn't interview anyone who went down the COVID is a hoax sort of route, um, that these are people that just were genuinely really compelled by their faith. But I think we put that first question aside to just talk about what I think is the most insane part of this article, which is just even whatever you feel about COVID restrictions, about people's religious rights, like the lengths to which this these local officials
0: well, went. Well, c- can we before we go there, because I do agree that there's some weird stuff going on there. I do want to say, like, the th- there are a lot of crazy things that California did for COVID. Uh, the ban on indoor gatherings or certain things I would not put at the top of the list, because till this day, for all of the debates we've had and things we've learned about COVID, one thing has remained unchanged, which is this is a disease that people get from respiratory fluids that are basically spewed out during exhalation. And depending on what you're doing, if you're exercising, you're coughing, you're sneezing, you're yelling, um, you increase the possibility of transmission. And if you're indoors in close quarters, there's not a scientist I've ever heard who says that that's not a risk factor. Uh, and it is carried through droplets. So like when they're saying, hey, indoor activities of a certain kinds, so if I'm sitting next to you and we're both yeah. singing, uh, then they weren't crazy for having well, mind you, like, at the, the same time. Of that.
1: They they had certain counties in LA, like I was in L A and they were banning outdoor like once we knew that the that outdoor areas were the yeah, safest place that one could stupid. be they were also doing that yeah. so there this was like but that's a really but
0: that's not I what mean, this case is about they're, but this it's not case about is how also about out.
1: people who had a different risk and cost benefit analysis based on their religious faith and their right to exercise that but
0: yeah
1: okay. Okay, but are, we have to talk about yeah. the things that they did. Yeah. Okay. That's so the, we'll, that's we'll stipulate
0: the, on that front. So, the, okay. so it seems like Ricky, I, I went down the Supreme court rabbit hole. So I admittedly like have a superficial sense of what's going on here. So let me, let me ask you, uh, in terms of like the draconian measures that we're talking about okay. here. So they essentially created a, a geofence around this church.
1: Well, let's, I think there's two things here. Okay, one's all right, the monitors you tell me. and one's the geofence. I think we should okay. talk about the monitors, which is the kind of more basic level here. And then the geofence, I think we should get to second because that has the bigger implications. Okay. But this county hired 10 officers that were business compliance people. Um, They were enforcement officers to work on behalf of the county. They also allowed, Citizens to put in anonymous complaints about other people so they could snitch on people breaking COVID regulations. And these enforcement officers were paid $219 an hour. Um, they started going into the church physically in August, and they some of the things that they describe from their reports are women drinking coffee in the hallway 11 young adults gathered. Here's some direct quotes from their court filings enforcement officer redacted and myself watched through this at this point there, there they actually took over a church that was complying with for the, the ordinances and watching from their property. Enforcement officer redacted and myself watched through a chain link fence as greeters welcomed attendees into the building. Members of the public entering the church were not wearing face coverings and none of the greeters were wearing face coverings. I witnessed some greeters hug congregants who were also not wearing face coverings. And then a second one, we watched a YouTube live stream of the indoor service occurring inside the church. So they're sitting in this church next door watching People come in through a chain link fence, tallying up how many of them are wearing masks, and getting paid $219 an hour to do this. And then also watching the YouTube live stream. And then when they were actually physically going into the church, they were going into prayer groups for mothers with small children, watching them through a window, reporting people who were singing while indoors. They were sitting in on youth events and Bible study classes. Like these are members, government officials that were sitting in on a group called Mana for Moms, which was a prayer group for mothers with infants. And they're sitting there watching them. And this
0: is somehow helping yeah. the world. Well, w- Ricky, we were all bored in our own ways during the pandemic and people handled it differently. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so <laughs> I think so. It's look, outrageous. There left, are government like, officials. Look, I'm not going to defend everything that these people did, but I do want to, I want to, I want to, uh, a thought experiment here, which is. First of all, I, there's always this selective thing like the overtime of the police officers. Like, I don't know anything about this writer, but like a lot of the, a lot of the people who are like alarmed over these cases like are generally pro police. Why do we have such crazy overtime? Like this pay guy's for on police officers. But anyways, what I'm saying is uh, like all I'm saying is like why do we talk about overtime only when it's the shit we don't we don't like. Now, I think like the I I, I have no idea whether $219 is appropriate overtime or not. So that detail to me is irrelevant, but I think like the it's a tricky question because like there's there's whether we agree with the restriction or not. And then there's the question of well once it's the restriction and you're enforcing it and then there's the question of like what they're doing today. So like to me I treat those three things separately. We already talked about the first part. The second part is all right, let's put yourself in the shoes of a, a public health commissioner who truly believes that people congregating is is a public health concern that is a collective problem. It's not just a risk that those people take for each other, but it leads to increased community spread, which means more people die. So, in that case, if you truly believe that, then and there's a law against it, and these people are flouting that law, you need to find a way to prove that they're they're flouting that law. And to me,
1: to what av- to what avail though to millions of dollars in fines. Like, I mean, they didn't prevent them from doing anything. And instead they just sat there and watched Bible studies groups. And this, the time frame on this, like, for example, from the period of like late November to very early January of 2021, at which point, like we knew a lot more about COVID than we did in the very early days. Yep. They surveilled them for 51 hours and this is a <laughs> church. So this is you not something January, that just open. Yeah. Yeah, this is going into January. I mean, this is this is a ch- this is a church, a church is not open 24/7 all the time. I mean, this is crazy
0: crazy. Look, let me agree with certain things. This this was this was an overreaction, especially in the long term. Like like I and many people Feel very differently about COVID restrictions today. I know that you you have been rather consistent on this, but I've changed a lot in how I think about COVID restrictions. I still think bans on indoor gatherings of certain kinds at the early days of the pandemic, we didn't re- didn't really know the science, were totally justified. Um, outdoor stuff, I think they held. I agree, they held on to that stuff way too long. Uh, but I do think, but we could disagree on all that kind of stuff. What I think is. Um, I treat differently some of the things, I don't defend everything they did at the time, but I treat differently some of the things they did at the time versus the fact that till this day, they continue to fight this church, which to me, I think it's time it's for us as a society to move on from this kind of stuff and say, Absolutely. look, let's all show a little bit of grace to each other and say, look, I don't want to hassle you. We, let, let's jettison as much of the COVID politics as we possibly can. And so to me, that's where I'm with you is like, look, and, and there are things that they did back. I don't want to, I don't want to claim that everything they did seemed right to me, but uh, but at some point you got to prove that people are breaking the law if you do care about enforcing the law. But and I do think like the fact that. that they're still doing it today bothers me.
1: You can prove it from far less intrusive means, which brings me to the last point, And then I'll let you off the hook here. But they were also using cellular mobility data that they were getting from this private company called SafeGraph that just took 47 million people's cell phone data apparently that's something that you can do Um, I have no idea how that works or how that's okay but they put a geofence around the property so they could calculate how many people are going in and then smaller geofences in different buildings so that they could keep track of which building within the property people were in and if they were there for more than four minutes it became a quote visit The Mm. the pastor says that their numbers are completely Accurate, and they paid a Stanford professor $800 an hour to analyze this, which is Crazy, because theoretically, this means that like the government can know what freaking room in your house you're in at a certain point in time. They also were using this data to monitor how many people in the county left the county on Thanksgiving so that they could get a sense of how how many people were flouting restrictions. And to anyone who doesn't really care about people going to church or who was really gung ho on covid uh, restrictions. Think about like other possible applications of this, where a private company, a, a public, a, a public official can buy this data on private individuals off this private company and what if they're doing it in abortion clinics to see who's getting an abortion what if there's some dystopian future where the stop woke act devolves and anybody who's going to a, a lecture by a critical race theorist is now put on a list because they put a geofence around the auditorium mm-hmm. in the university like there's just so many ridiculous re- Ridiculously terrifying implications of this sort of technology without people's consent. And you could also watch where these people that went through that geofence later went to their home. There's no evidence that the county officials did that. But theoretically, it's anonymized. But in the end, you could figure out who anyone was.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's well put. And I think the tricky part of this is you could equally come up with cases where you'd want the like especially if you had a you know a family member kidnapped or a family member who had something bad happened to them and like using a geofence could help you know, find mm-hmm. the perpetrator faster. You could always come up with examples. But I agree that we need to be really careful about these things and we need there's to There's no
1: war I mean maybe there's a case for like if you if you need a warrant to get access to this sort of data. But even that, I mean the trade off between safety and liberty here, I mean liberty was just thrown out. Yeah. And are we sure the they end. didn't have a warrant for this?
0: Maybe I don't know about that, but um,
1: they no, you can just they just purchased this from Safegraph the data of all these cell phone I users.
0: Apparently, they
2: had forty-seven million devices.
1: They had a restrict or like um they had some sort of order from a judge that allowed them to go into the property. Yeah, but this data is just out there Look,
0: in I the think ether. My biggest takeaway from this is. Look, I agree with you on the final piece of this, which is that the state needs to just give it a rest. Already, there are better uses of of state taxpayer money, and let's just move on from this. I think, like, there this this is an interesting, you know, walk through memory lane on some of the the COVID politics of this stuff. And I would say, like, the thing that that the, the, what's really apparent here is sometimes I forget how crazy this t- period of time was. Like, yeah. like reading back that this was. Like this was how we were spending our time. It honestly I don't I don't even know Into what to January. say. January. I don't even know what to say. It's honestly I think it's wild.
1: I mean we're gonna have more emergencies in the future. And I think that the lesson from things like this is we need to figure out what the guardrails are because our liberties were eroded considerably in this pandemic. And we need to set precedent so that this does not happen again, because under the guise of emergency powers, government officials just trampled
0: over people's rights. Well, I think that's why they need to be measured, right? Because, like, let's say that the pandemic was 10 times more deadly. Let's say it's like a Last of Us zombie, you know, disease or something. I also think
1: if the pandemic was 10 times more deadly that people would be 10 times less likely to be going to church. Like I do yeah. think that there is like a point where we have to say, we trust people to calibrate their own risk tolerance. And the lesson of the pandemic was that short circuiting that trust in yeah. people to make their own decisions just threw us completely off track. And so I think lessons should be learned and these people are crazy. For
0: another day, I would love to come back to that question because that's where I think you and I have a slightly different Philosophy, or where we would draw the line in the sense that I think people should take risks about themselves. This is why like, I would legalize almost every drug or I want Action Park to exist. I think any risk people that are specific to themselves, I'm all about them taking those risks. The problem with a pandemic is that it involves both a risk to yourself and to the larger community because you could spread that disease. And to me that... That's where things get tricky for me.
1: well before we go too deep down that rabbit hole, I would just say that there was a period in time where we were saying if you get the vaccine, your risk you you won't transmit it to people and this and that And so we mandated things on that basis, but it turned out to be more of a self-protective vaccine than the other way around. so was
0: still but still even till this day looking back at that data, it still mitigated the risk of spread during key parts of the pandemic. I think like certain people oversell that evidence well, Maybe I have an idea. Like maybe we just get the state of California and this congregation together, get them some shrooms, play a little bit of music, and uh, we could save taxpayers a lot of money and this church a lot of money. Just work out a It seems our
1: differences. like these compliance officers- All there is, is love. Definitely could have used some shrooms. Yes.
0: All there is is love, Ricky. All right. Okay. So well, that's what uh, the church wh-
1: was trying to tell people. <laughs> But these compliance officers are getting in their way. Anyway, I'm going to
0: fact check that claim about whether that's what that church was saying. You could be right. Now, all right. Thank you to our listeners. A spirited episode. And uh, we will be back on, what's today? Thursday? Wow, this week has gone fast. Wow. Wow. So we will be back on Tuesday. Thank you, everybody. Get out there. Rate, review, subscribe. Give us that five-star rating. uh, And uh, we'll talk to you Tuesday. Thank you.
1: Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell.